Hi, and welcome to Off the Sidelines, your guide to getting into early stage investment. The world needs a new generation of great companies, and we need your help. I'm your host, I'm Chris Wink. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Technically, a decade-old news organization that tracks how local economies change. I've gotten to spend my whole career talking to entrepreneurs, investors, learning how they interact and what they want from each other. I've also gotten to make a lot of friends, particularly nerdy ones who love places and economies and companies in change. And look, I've brought one here. Hi, Abby. Hi, Chris. Abby Lee Mosconi. You're a writer, you're an editor, you're a singer, I've learned. Uh, I know you as the voice behind Technically's This Week in Jobs newsletter, which tracks growing companies and how people can work there. But you're here today because we've commissioned you to be my aide-de-camp on this podcast project. Yes. Wow. Thank you for that introduction. I am all those things, but it's, it's so nice to hear you say it. I am also, to clarify for our listeners, not an expert at all when it comes to early stage investments. So for those of you learning about this for the first time, I'm right there beside you. Uh, Don't ever feel ashamed if you have to think, what the heck are they talking about right now? Or if you find yourself Googling words as we go secretly, just know that I have Googled those same words. It's a safe space, folks, and I'm excited to be here. I'll aim to keep us on track along the big economic trends. And Abby, well, uh, Abby, you are... I guess I'm the fun one. But seriously, I'm here to ask the questions other new investors might want to ask. In this pilot podcast, presented thanks to support from Project Entrepreneur, a program sponsored by UBS, we'll be speaking with investors and experts about how to get involved in startup investment. First up, as always, a word of caution. The fun part. Early stage company investing is incredibly risky. Even the wisest and most fortunate will consistently misread businesses and founders. They'll simply be displaced by market forces beyond their control. So remember, early stage investment is primarily an act of creation. What's cool about it is the fact that you can help shape the types of entrepreneurs and companies that exist in this world. And this podcast is going to help you explore the different ways that you can get involved and make that kind of impact. No matter what your background or your reason for tuning in, welcome. We really hope you enjoy the journey and learn something valuable along the way. On that note, Chris, tell us a little bit about our guest this episode. Okay. So when we laid out the plans for this podcast pilot season, one of those interviews we knew we needed was with Village Capital. That's the decade-old firm with the audacious idea that staid old VC needed its own disruption. And like the well-seasoned journalist you are, Chris, you went and got Vilcap co-founder Victoria Fram on the phone. Pretty well, impressive. Well-seasoned. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> me. Uh, to be honest, it was, it was actually voice over internet protocol. But yes, I did speak to Victoria. Oh, boy. Anyways, Victoria is not just the co-founder, she retains the title of Managing Director of Vilcap Investments, where she holds down a West Coast presence. She's built an early stage fund to back entrepreneurs that are addressing significant global challenges and to design a new system for how early stage capital moves. During our conversation, Victoria scoured her experiences for how and why she found her way into investing, just so you might learn a thing or two. Let's listen in. Thanks so much for for being here and being part of this conversation, Victoria. 
Absolutely. So I want to start and talk a little bit about Village Capital and then talk some about your own journey there. Um, Village Capital has an, has an extraordinary reputation for trying to approach venture capital a little bit differently. Can you, in your own words, talk, talk about some of those traditions of private equity and specifically venture capital that, that Bill Cap's trying to and, and pretty aggressively changing right now? Yeah. Um, so we have set out to think really differently about how early stage capital backs innovation. We often talk about how it's kind of ironic that, you know, venture capital as an industry is so committed to finding means of innovation through founders themselves, but we rarely take a step back and sort of consider our own practices and think about innovating in the investment field at large. So it's it's one of those paradigms that's a little hypocritical industry-wise. Um, you know, we're using structures and term sheets that have existed for decades and decades and may not any longer be really serving the, to the purposes that they were designed to. Um, and we see that in a few different ways. I think, you know, how some of the power dynamics are allocated between people who have capital and people doing the really, really hard work of building new things in the world. And there's a great imbalance there that we've seen manifest itself in a bunch of ways um, between the relationship between founders and investors, also just what type of founder gets funded, um, what business models make it to market, the types of problems those business models are solving. And um, I could go on and on about the the kind of things that we um, identified that, that we want to change, but the, the way that we've gone about approaching those is to really change how we are using the tool of investment itself. And a few different fronts on that. One, we have founders themselves actually decide who gets funded um, in our programs and in our network. So every initial check we write out of the fund um, is determined based on a group of peers spending time with each other for a few months and uh, evaluating the investability of a venture um, based on their own knowledge of an industry and the, you know, nuts and bolts of what it takes to get a business off the ground. Um, we also have experimented with using different structures. So not just the same sort of traditional venture capital equity funding models that have become really popularized um, in the kind of enthusiasm around startup culture, but thinking about what type of capital a company actually needs and what that means for the relationship between the founder and investor over time and sort of where each of their uh, destinies might be influenced on the same path together. I'm so interested in, as you started hitting on, that we assume so many corners of private markets have to change, but, but funders, uh, strangely, in their own models might be resistant. Do you have any sense this many years into this work about why the investment community is at times less risk adverse about its model than it expected of those they invest in? Yeah, um, I, I, it's a great question. And there's also a, a funny pattern of behavior where we keep doing things the same way, even though we know that they don't really work. Um, so, you know, the, I think there's the oft used quote about the definition of insanity is like doing the same <laughs> thing over and over again and expecting different <laughs> results. But just, you know, a couple of those um, for instance, like to get through an investment committee um, of limited partners, so the people that 
fund managers raise capital from, you've got to have a really standard looking fund that is, you know, typically 10 years long and might have a couple extensions. Um, and in speaking to LPs, uh, institutional LPs, they will often admit that, you know, they know that not, no fund is going to wrap up within that time frame. Um, but to get through their investment committee, like it's got to look like every other fund out there. So right. even though they know, you know, I was talking to one LP recently that was just getting liquidity from a fund that they had been in for 21 years that was supposed to be the, the sort of standard 10 year term. And uh, we're just not not seeing that. So I think some of it is um, is like so many other things, a default to kind of a bias of behavior that is just ingrained and the system works the way that it's designed to. And if you have an investment committee that can sort of operate within boundaries that are specified, if you see something from outside those boundaries, um, you know, do you lose your job if you take a risk on the thing that doesn't look like everything else? Or do you lose your job if uh, you, uh, you know, do the same thing that has sometimes proven successful. Uh, there's just not, it's not always the case that incentives are aligned for innovation um, yep. at every stage of the capital chain. So, and, and that's one of many anchors of change that, that Bill Cap takes on. I, I know another iconic one is, is the diversity of your portfolio speaks to geography and founders and approaches. Just share a little bit about why that's something that is important to, to your work. Yeah, you know, I think we've been really glad to see um, that become a much broader industry-wide conversation over the last few years. And it's certainly something that's been important to us from day one that, um, you know, early on, one of our taglines was democratizing entrepreneurship. And um, it is really was really focused around the fact that we wanted to have a much more pluralized set of voices around the table about who could get funding and who got a shot. Um, I think the barriers to entrepreneurship and to the type of um, risk taking that is afforded to some and not everybody are still so high that like even though this conversation is becoming a bit more mainstream, there's a tremendous amount of work to be done if you just look at sort of the statistics about where capital goes in early stage funding and entrepreneurship, we still have a ton of work um, around the geography diversification question, how female founders and founders of color are getting um, a fair shot and what types of problems are getting solved. Um, and for us, that's that has meant um, being really intentional about where we're trying to um, source new ideas and new founder relationships. Um, so making sure that it's a better reflection of the population overall and where we think um, innovation has just as equal a shot at being born. Um, so not in you know already very well capitalized markets or very cap well capitalized networks of people that um, get a shot to build something and fail and build something and fail. Um, and I doing... thought we only made companies in the <laughs> Valley and New York and Boston. I thought that was yeah. the only, those only places. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the statistics about uh, where, where those markets are seeing funding are, are widespread now, but 75% uh, of capital goes to those three. We think that it's, it's just crazy to think that that's where 75% of the innovation that's worth backing um, exists. Similarly, you know, women are 50% of the population and getting, depending on what stage you look at between five and 15% of the capital, like right. it's, 
it's crazy to think that we're seeing all of the um, fundable ideas and innovation we need. Uh, so, you know, we've we've inverted a lot of those statistics. For the um, geographic question, you know, 80% of our portfolio is outside of those three core markets. 40% of our capital has gone to female founders. 25% of our capital has gone to founders of color who typically see 2%. Um, and we think that it's made for not only a uh, stronger portfolio in terms of our performance and the impact that we've been able to have, but um, one of the one of the sort of aspects of uh, intentionality and compounding around um, this focus we've had is that then you start to get the effect of of deeper networks being present across all of those aspects of diversification. So we, you know, have done a lot of work trying to build ecosystems in places that haven't seen as much capital and are now seeing those really pay off in great ways that communities of founders are coming together in those places. Um, and it's attracting the attention of investors in places that I think used to have a much narrower scope that they would look at. Yep. And, and one of the reasons I, I harp on, on that in our conversation here is a, a goal of this show is to hit on the idea that in investment, whether you're a high net worth individual and, and could consider approaching this as an asset class for yourself or you're an individual who might consider getting in through an institutional role, the, the point is that this is a place to make change. And, and I wonder if you have your own thoughts, whether you like comparisons to philanthropy in an in investment strategy, or you kind of shudder from that because the expectations can be different. You want to be known for delivering returns. I know that's a, a point of pride for many. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that and how, how much you like the idea of this being about making change, or, or does that concern you? Yeah. Um, so I think it's a, a totally valid question and starting point for people thinking about deploying capital and are sort of you know, weighing those two of, am I thinking about this coming out of my sort of philanthropic bucket, or am I thinking about trying to um, really make returns? And and my co-founder, Ross Baird, has um, uh, often talked about this one pocket versus two pocket mindset. Um, and our intentionality at, at Vilcap is really focused around driving more attention and activity towards this, the one pocket approach, which is if we just rely on business to sort of maximize returns and then think about trying to clean everything up later philanthropically, we're never going to solve any of these problems that we're trying to solve. Um, and I think we've seen that play out in a variety of ways, both, you know, at the, the top end of really established corporations that sort of think about values second um, and find themselves in a precarious situation in the markets where they operate or they're relationships with stakeholders um, to startups and and those that aren't, if you're not thinking about sort of how you integrate some of the concern for um, the customers you're serving and the team you have, and that's everything from how you operate in as a business to how you treat your, your team members and the sort of diversity that you have from day one. Um, I think we've seen over and over again, it comes, you can't sort of uh, outrun those issues, it always comes back to, to bite you in some sense. Um, so for us, you know, all of the investors that have come into our fund are really aligned with the one pocket approach of having an impact and also seeing returns um, and 
are thinking about doing business fundamentally in a different way. Mm. I think I saw, to turn to, to your own personal journey for a moment, I think I saw real estate was, was where you at least got early start. Yep. And I wonder, did, did any of that very place-based mindset, did, did that help translate into your, your views here at Impact or are those two different you know eras of Victoria? Yeah, um, you know, it's funny because they do feel like two different eras um, <laughs> and thinking about just sort of the the risk return profiles of private equity relative to early stage venture capital and how many more unknowns all of the founders that we work with face. Um, it's It feels like just a fundamentally different um, experience as an investor, but certainly um, that chapter in my professional life um, was was very fundamental in teaching me how to think about value creation and sort of the, you know, the foundations of being an investor and um, learning how to take risk and learning how to think about forecasting and underwriting. And um, it was a, a great early formative experience, but um, was not at all focused on impact in the same way. <laughs> so, but the takeaway there is you also don't necessarily have to have been strictly in, uh, you know, a, a VC lane of work to, to do this sort of work. There, there yeah. are some transferable lessons I hear you say. Yep. Um, no, I, I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, I was lucky to be in that role in uh, the financial crisis. So sort of saw how macro level changes affect a bunch of different parts of the economy and both the, you know, the negative implications of that, surely, but the opportunity that um, was born out of that for people that were trying to figure out new ways to um, create value and, and to innovate. So I think that that gave me um, a glimpse into a bit about economic cycles that are relevant across all, all aspects of investing. So you're having lunch next week with someone, high net worth individual, they're early on this process. They're, they're savvy and they're aware of risk. So let's pull that off the table. They're aware of, of the deep sense of risk that they take on. Um, but they're maybe thinking about what it means to become an LP, an existing fund. They're thinking about perhaps joining a local angel network and doing due diligence with others. Or they're perhaps thinking about doing some small checks on their own with, with their own network. If they're just looking for advice about how to understand their own pathway there, are there things that jump out to you that you would want that person walking away knowing? Oh, uh, such a good question. And I think there's so many aspects. Um, of... so you're, you're only having lunch and it's only you're just doing <laughs> tapas. So it's only doing tapas, yeah. so you don't have a lot of time. Um, yeah. What would you um, begin with? <laughs> I think, you know. I won't hold you to like a, a Wharton class or something. Just, sure. just say uh, what you got to sure. say over tapas. Um, you know, I think one of the things that we've spent a lot of time um, working on with founders is is how many things they need to be um, they need to be sort of playing this multidimensional game at all times, right? They are thinking not just about the urgency of execution um, or raising capital or managing their team, but also, you know, how to how to monitor competitive dynamics in their landscape and and maintain relationships with their suppliers. And um, as an investor, I think figuring out where across that broad landscape of um, potential challenges and opportunities, you can be helpful 
and where you can be least distracting um, is is the place to kind of focus. Founders are, you know, trying to build expertise on a variety of fronts, um, many of which they might not have had any prior experience with. Like we, you know, for for uh, entrepreneurs approaching us, um, trying to raise their first round, we hope that they have uh, established you know, a good sense of the market opportunity that they want to address, what what problem exists that they think they have a solution to. And hopefully they have some lived experience with that problem, but they probably have never negotiated a term sheet before. So um, right. I think at, from the investor perspective, uh, especially if you are coming at this from, you know, have, have done other things and are now looking to get into it, like where across that potential array of, um fundamental sort of aspects of building a startup, can you be most helpful and focus on on that one as you engage with startups? So like if you can help be an advisor to negotiating a term sheet, or if you can, you know, if you have a lot of deep industry expertise in the area where they're building the business, like what are the top three introductions you can make to them for prospective customers? Um, and and I think it's it's also helpful to kind of have at the back of your mind, the Hippocratic Oath approach of like, you know, do no harm in terms of <laughs> distraction and, and how much you ask of them. And um, another big thing for, for founders early on is like managing the dynamics of their cap table. And if they have a bunch of small angel investors, I know that can be, uh, it can be a challenge for people to navigate. Yep. That idea of giving advice to someone strikes me as a, as a strong device. Um, if you are talking to someone who, who's interested in company creation and they, there could be an entrepreneurial path, an early stage employee at an, at an early stage company, or they, they kind of harbor this idea of, of going down in, in a path of getting involved in institutionalized venture, venture capital. And they have their finance degree, let's say, or maybe not, but um, are there characteristics for you that, that if you were giving advice to someone interested in company creation, why you think the entrepreneurial journey would be better suited for someone or the getting involved in the funding side would be better suited? Is there some, some defining characteristic? I'm sure there's lots of similar ones, um, but do you find anything there that strikes you as? Yeah, that's a good, um, it's a good question. And I think there are some, um, there are degrees to which you feel the same things, right? Like on the oscillating curve of startup highs and lows, the founder herself <laughs> is feeling those deeply on the highs <laughs> and deeply on the lows. And I think investors, hopefully if we're doing our jobs right and have, you know, a good amount of empathy, um, we feel those same curves, but they're a little bit more muted. Like the highs and lows are, are a little bit lower and higher. Um, I, I think it really comes down to what you are personally most passionate about doing. Like if there is one problem that you can't stop thinking about needing to solve and think that there's a real strong demand in the market for, that's to me a pretty good sign that, you know, maybe you have what it takes to be somebody who's going to build a real lasting solution. Um, the challenge for, I mean, the we think and, talk all the time about how founders have the hardest job out there. Um, and, and clearly one of those challenges is that you really need to be all in. You don't get the diversification that an investor gets of, you know, 
working with one founder in one sector and having another one that is, you know, at a slightly different stage or slightly different industry and can think about some of the same company um, problem solving and creation um, issues, but are not sort of tunnel vision on one thing all the time, day and night. Um, and, and those tend to be, you know, people do switch from one side of the table to another. Um, and I think there's a whole different conversation about how relevant operating expertise is or isn't um, for investors to have. But they're, they're really different modes of operating. Um, and they have, you know, their own sets of pros and cons. Mm. Do, do you remember an early deal you were involved in and, and what you learned from it, what you struggled with? or what helps you feel like you, you would be good at this, that this was something that I am good at that you think others could, could, could draw as lesson from? Yeah. Um, I think again, to the last question of, of, do you think you could be good at it? You know, it's, um, the delayed gratification in this field <laughs> is, is a real thing. People often talk about it. it's one of the hardest things, um, to tell whether you're good at with any measure of, um, sort of instant feedback. And that's another thing to think about on the founder or investor side of the table. Like the discipline of revenue for founders can be a, a pretty quick turnaround to tell whether you have some customer validation and product market fit. It's a much, much longer path for investors typically. Um, and I think what made me feel like uh, that this is something that I was passionate about doing long-term is just that, that gut check of like, do you get to a place where things don't feel like, um, you know, real work? Like you, you are engaged with a founder in a way that you're so excited about the potential and the conversation and, um, the solution that you're hopefully playing a small part in trying to see out there in the world. Um, and whether that feels like something you could do over and over again for a long time. Um, and certainly when I think about my best days at work, it's, when I am most closely replicating that experience. Um, so I, I think on the um, flip side, what, what have I learned from things that haven't worked out? Um, you know, there's that Tolstoy quote about every happy family is happy in the same <laughs> way and every unhappy family is um, unique in their unhappiness or, or some version of that. Yep. Uh, and, I don't know that that is, uh, you know, there are certainly themes that uh, play out in the same way that when things don't work I out. I appreciate but... the Toy Story reference. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, Anna Karenia, I think that's great. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think that some of the unifying factors within that, um, you know, when things go sideways, how do they go sideways, uh, are that things don't get better by waiting for them to get better or denying that they're not going well. Like in, in all of the cases where we've seen things correct to the successful side, it's because founders have been self-aware enough to say, like, we're going to put some time bounds around this hypothesis that we're testing. And if we don't see X, Y, Z results, um, mm. we know that it's time for us to course correct. Um, and there's a, a fine line sometimes between founders saying, you know, no, I have a vision for the world that is fundamentally different than how things look today. And we just need to keep sort of forging ahead until the rest of the world gets that, whether that's customers, you know, adopting it or um, some kind of market dynamic that they need to shift. Uh, and 
it's a really, it, it's a fine line between doing that until the absolute moment where you have a breakthrough and uh, sort of incorporating some of that market feedback and saying, you know, maybe the way that we were thinking about this isn't the right way. But certainly in our experience, the types of founders that we have really um, successfully worked with have a, an immense amount of self-awareness and are, are constantly asking themselves whether the version of the world that they believe can be true, um, whether they're seeing signs that point to that um, still being true and whether they have the tools they need and uh, asking themselves those types of hard questions um, over and over again. It's wonderful. Uh, is there a question you wish more people in investment asked of companies they were they were validating? Oh, so good. Um, I think the most fundamental one to me and the reason that we have really been so impact driven in our work is that we believe that startups can be such a fundamental lever to create more positive impact. Um, and so I think the, the biggest one is like, how is the world and society better if you're massively successful? Mm. Um, and that's, that's goes from the most basic building blocks of like, what, what type of team are you building and who's at the table and how much ownership stake do they have in the company to how you're, you know, thinking about sustainability in your operations and, how your customer um, has a better experience by the delivery of your product or service. Like that. So final question to send you off. Uh, what's something you wish you knew when you first started? That the feeling those highs and lows um, is a, a real, uh, an opportunity and a challenge. I think um, that it's sort of inherent in the work that it doesn't get easier to ride that roller coaster every day, um, and that clearly the founders that are, um, you know, breathing and uh, eating and sleeping the the ins and outs of their operations are feeling those even higher than you. Um, that and I think the the aspect of how long it takes um, and that patience is a real um, must have in in this role. That's perfect. Victoria, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I really love that. I love her usage of the familiar roller coaster metaphor. I think that that does a lot of work for me personally. But Chris, what do you think someone beginning their investor journey is supposed to do with this roller coaster entrepreneur metaphor? Yeah, I, I don't know exactly. Maybe you know, remember there are ups and downs and many of the ends are way more anticlimactic than you actually want them to be. Right. This isn't just a perfectly straight path to success. You know, it's funny, we hear so much about the entrepreneurial journey and so little about the investor journey. Bingo, yes, that is what we're gonna do here with Off the Sidelines, discover that investor journey. And we hope you'll be joining us. If you have a question you want answered, tweet us at technical underscore LY or me at Christopher Wink. Make sure to subscribe to Off the Sidelines on all your podcast platforms of choice. Thank you to our partners and supporters at Project Entrepreneur, a program sponsored by UBS, for making this series possible. Music in this episode was by Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.